So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 6th chapter, focusing on the 26th verse this morning, but reading verses 20 through 26. And he he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to truly bring it alive for us. Our dear Lord, I know that we are, we are dealing with an issue that you take very seriously, and I just pray that in our hearts we will take this seriously also this morning, that we know that so often there's a flippancy about your word and about this revelation that is so significant that the words of life are in. And I just pray that as we go through it and we see this last woe, first of all, that we will uh, see and know the truth, but also that we will not disassociate ourselves from what Jesus is talking about in this passage, that It will resonate with each one of us. We give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Of all the woes that we have been discussing over the last couple of weeks, and indeed of all the woes that Scripture speaks of, and there's quite a few of them, I think this particular woe is one that draws the anger, the wrath of God, as much as any of the others. And that is the misuse of his revelation, the abuse, the corruption, the manipulation of his word, of his revelation for whatever purpose. Um, Unfortunately, we see that happening all around us. And, And we see quite often teachers and preachers who actually make their living by misusing the word. Well, James puts it in a pretty specific way when he says, let not many of you want to be teachers because teachers and preachers of the word of God are going to be held to a stricter standard than others will. Hebrews talks of elders who teach and preach as well and says that you need to obey them because these are men who will be held in account for your souls, for your spiritual well-being. And so we see that there is a, uh, a profound statement just in Scripture as a whole, but I, I think the place you get it more than any place is in the prophets. Prophets from Moses to Isaiah to Jeremiah to Ezekiel to Jesus make it absolutely clear how seriously God takes it when we misuse misinterpret, misapply his word. And so therefore, I I want to start out this morning by just reading you a passage. It's a rather lengthy one. You'll please indulge me. But 
I think it'll set the tone for this morning. Brother Frank read from the same um, chapter in Jeremiah. There are multiple passages like this. But I think, and what I'm really hoping that it will do, is to establish just how seriously God takes this so that when we approach the rest of the morning that it will be in this context. Jeremiah says this concerning the prophets. My heart is broken within me. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord and because of his holy words. Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I have found their evil, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another. Behold, I am against the prophet, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, thus declares the Lord. Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tells them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness when I did not send them or charge them, so they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. Now, the reason, as I said, that I'm starting out this message on that cheery note is because I want you to recognize something. That the subject that we have, the objective that we have, what we are going to focus on this morning is indeed something that is of great importance and significance to our Lord. And so therefore, each and every one of us should take this extremely seriously. We're wrapping up this morning what we have called the wheels and the woes of this, um, this, the gospel that we're reading, the Beatitudes, if you will, the the, the, the way that it's being presented to us. And we've seen four wheels. Wheels are just an old fancy, old timey word for blessings, blessedness. We've seen four wheels and we have already looked at three woes and we're going to see the fourth one this morning. Now I'm just going to look right now as far as our review is concerned on the three wheels and the three woes, the first three, because we're going to look at the fourth wheel a little bit more closely this morning. The first three wheels are all about the gospel, and we talked about that. It's, it's, it's not a physical thing. He's not just saying, hey, blessed are you if you were poor, because for some reason. He says, no, blessed are you if you're poor in spirit. Blessed are you if you are poor and recognize that, spiritually speaking, you are a beggar and cannot save yourself. And because of that, you reach out to God and ask for his mercy. Blessed are you if that state, if you are in that state. He goes on in the same, thing, in the same vein, blessed are you if you're hungry. It's not just hungry for food, it's hungry for the Lord, it's hungry for righteousness, it's hungry for reconciliation with God and the things of God. Blessed are you if you are in that state and blessed are you if you weep. 
Because you're weeping over your sins. You're weeping over a, a mortification over your sins. Now, the great blessing that he just stated in all three of those is a blessing because that's the state of regeneration. That's the state of one who has been born again. No one seeks after God on their own. No one is mortified over their sins. And so therefore, it is a blessing because you have been saved. And that is at the very foundation of the blessings. Well, the woes are exactly the opposite. The woes speak of those who are filled with other things than with the Lord and find their comfort and their hope in something else. You know, woe are you if you are rich because you may focus on those riches and those riches may be your security. You may go to your death thinking that those riches are going to save you. Well, they won't. And so therefore, they're a great curse upon you. Now, really, we're still not talking just about physical things. We're talking about spiritual things. So woe to you if you think you're rich in righteousness. Woe to you if you think that you're good enough to get into heaven to please a perfect and holy God because you're not. That won't save you. Woe to you if you don't hunger after God, but rather hunger after the things of this world. Woe to you if you are filled up with all the things of this world, rather than being filled up with God. Because there's nothing in this world except God through Jesus Christ that will save you. Woe to you if you you laugh now, if you're frivolous, if you're trivial, if you're shallow. If the only thing that you're interested in is the, where, is, is the here and now, the things that are going on right now, and you give your life to them, not thinking about what's going to happen to you after this life is over and when you stand before the judgment seat of God. I mean, woe to you if you're that shallow and that short-sighted. So all of the weals and the woes that we have already seen have to do with redemption and the redemptive plan of God, as do the fourth ones. Let me just remind you that when we talk about that word woe, it, it sort of counterbalances the word blessed. When we saw the blesseds in the wheels, they were a state of being word. In other words, you're in a state of blessedness if you are poor in the Lord, if you hunger after him, if you, were, if you weep over your sins. Well, the woe is more of an interjection, it is more of an emotional outburst, but at the same time it points to a, a, a state of being. It's just that the state of being that it points to is not necessarily in the here and now, it's in the not yet. That's going to happen to you after you leave this world and stand before God. It's the reverse of the, the blessing. But there's one thing I want to make sure that I bring out about the word woe. And, and, and that is the compassion that is part of it. And I, I, brothers and sisters, I've been praying all week. And, and, and I, those who prayed for me today and they asked me, what can I pray for? I told them, there's one thing I, I want to portray this morning. And that's the compassion with which Christ says these woes. There's a brokenheartedness. He's not happy about this. No one is happy about the loss. No one is happy about condemnation or damnation. No one wants anyone to suffer the kinds of things that they will suffer if they face God on their own merit. No one's happy about that. So this is an impassioned plea. And it is my great desire that as we begin to apply this, especially that that compassion of the word woe, the desperate desire for you not to suffer that. It is is going to come out as part of what we say 
And by the way, also wrapped up in these woes is the underlying idea of idolatry. There's so many idols that are mentioned here. There's so many idols that we give ourselves to, that we sell our souls to rather than God. And so that is what the woes are wrapped up in. One last thing I want you to notice about this, and then we'll get on with um, the, the, the new material for this morning. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but the wheels, when we looked at the blesseds, they're quite exclusive. Not everyone is in this state of being. This is a state of regeneration, born again, and not everyone is born again. So they're quite exclusive as far as the blessings go, but they're quite inclusive as far as the woes go. In other words, Jesus is speaking to quite a broad um, uh, crowd. He's got his apostles, he's got disciples, he's got disciple wannabes, he has the curiosity seekers, and he has the antagonist. He has virtually everybody right here, and he's saying woe to everyone. So the woe is universally applicable, different ways, different levels, but the woes are inclusive when the wheels are exclusive. Now, with that said, let's take a look at this fourth woe, but let's look at the wheel first. Because I left that out. I wanted to take it kind of separately. So look at your 22nd verse. We're going to look at the 22nd and 23rd verse as we once again take a look at the, at the blessing. Jesus says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Now, that's the most paradoxical of all these wheels. It's totally upside down. Who wants to be hated? Well, there's two things that are, are we, we need to point out. He, he's not saying you just want to be a jerk so everybody will hate you. It's going to come naturally. If, if, if you're following Jesus as a disciple, the world's going to hate you. The world loves its own, but it certainly hates Jesus. And so, therefore, you're, you're going to find yourself at odds with people. Now, there's two things I want you to notice about that. First of all, notice once again that this is a blessedness that is exclusive. All right? it's, it's an exclusive type of blessedness. If you're of the world, if you're like everyone else, if you're perfectly accepted by them, well, then guess what? You're going to be part of a different crowd. But if you are following Jesus, there's sort of a, an exclusivity to that. So it is another statement of being born again. Isn't, that's where the blessedness comes in. Blessed are you if the world hates you because guess what? They hated Jesus too. And that means they can see Jesus in you as we're, as we're going to see later on. But I also want you to see this, and this is really important for this morning. It drives a wedge between the Christian and the world. In other words, there's a distinguishable difference between the Christian and the world. And that's because they hate the Christian because they see Jesus in them. And if they don't see Jesus in you, they love you. And there's no reason for them to be angry with you. And that wedge that is drawn by this wheel is also going to be important later on. And of course, we saw the great blessing that came from this in the 23rd verse, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Remember, we talked about that rejoicing was such an unusual word. It's an imperative. It's a command. But at the same time, it's in the passive voice. How do you give a command that has to be given to you? You know, we, when we talked about that. And we're going to talk about it again because we recognize that when we're saved, we have a redeemed self. That redeemed self knows where it came from, knows where it's going, and therefore can rejoice all the time. That, that redeemed self is rejoicing. 
And yet it gets so covered up with the filth of this world, we can hardly get in touch with that joy. Well, we're, we're going to see that again of great importance this morning because that redeemed self is also the light that shines into the darkness that tells other people, hey, Jesus is in me. And if that light is so covered up with the things of the world, it can't be seen. Well, then this woe is going to apply to you as well. And so there's, a, um, there, there's that uh, important fact uh, of the... Uh, of the um, of that nature of this of this sin. Now, um, there's one last thing I want you to see in that 23rd verse, and this will become important today. It wasn't important. Uh, well, I'm not saying it wasn't important. I didn't give it much time before. We're going to give it a lot of time today, and, and and that's when it says there at the end of the verse, "For so their fathers did to the prophets." And, and what we want to see is that the persecution that the fathers were passing out to the prophets is the same kind of persecution that is being passed out to those who are the followers of Jesus. And so, in other words, the legacy, the heritage, the association is with the prophets of old, the ones who were faithful in accurately saying, thus saith the Lord, the exact opposite of what we just read in Jeremiah. And so there is an association, and we will make that association in a moment. Well, with that said, let's take a look at this fourth woe. All right, that kind of brings us up to the importance of this woe. Um, But as I have done with each one of these woes, uh, I I think it's important that we, first of all, establish what Jesus is not saying. Because we had to do that. He says, blessed are you, or I mean, woe to you if you're rich. Does that mean that rich people are, you know, all of them are sinners? Well, of course not. Nor is it a sin to be full, nor is it a sin to laugh. I mean, Jesus is not saying that. So therefore, we need to make sure we understand that when he says, woe to you if all people speak well of you, that he's not saying that we are supposed to walk around looking down our noses at everybody, making the world hate us, acting like a bunch of jerks. Unfortunately, that quite often happens in churches. That's not what he's telling us to do at all. In fact, Once again, let's go to Scripture, because the Scripture shows us and tells us that some of the great men of Scripture, like David, were also wildly popular. Boy, when David used to come back from the battlefield, they used to line the streets and throw flowers and stuff in his way and say, David has killed his ten thousands. And later on in 2 Samuel, we read that all the people took notice of it and it pleased them, and everything that the king did pleased all the people. In the book of Esther, which is probably going to be the first book, I'm going to kind of launch a Sunday evening, um, sort of an exegetical expositional reading. Um, I'll I'll bit more on that later on, but I think the first book I'm going to do is Esther. And the the hero of Esther is, of course, Mordecai. And Mordecai was a man that was very well liked. He was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. In fact, Paul commands us and tells us that if it is possible as far as we are concerned to be at peace with all people, to get along with all people, to to not be at odds with everyone. And and he tells Timothy when he's mapping out the characteristics, the, the qualifications of an elder, he says that not only should they be in good standing with the church, they should be in good standing with outsiders. 
Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and to a snare of the devil. And Peter even takes it a step beyond that and says that we're supposed to be in good standings with the Gentiles, meaning the pagans and the hedonists. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So, in other words, praise God for the fact that um, um, we're, we're looked upon as being good, uh, good examples in, in the societies in which we live. So, obviously, that's not what Jesus is talking about. In order to understand what Jesus is talking about, we need to get into that word, or, or, or in English, the words, all people. Because that's what he says, woe to you if all people speak well of you. It's not, Calvin points out and says, that this doesn't mean every last person in the world, that everyone has to like you, that you have to be accepted by everyone. In fact, no, he's talking about a very specific group of people. Woe to you if all people speak highly of you. And what he's talking about is a group of people who are... It's, it's what we talked about when we studied the book of John, those of you who were here, and we talked about that word world that John uses and how the world can mean several different things. It can mean the uh, planet on which we live. It can mean the, uh, the total mass of humanity, or it can mean the fallen world. And that's the kind of, of focus that all people has. When we talked about this group of people, we're talking about the mass of humanity in open rebellion against God and at enmity with him and all things to do with him, at enmity with Christ, at enmity with the church, and therefore at enmity with Christians. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but that's what all people refers to. It refers to those who hate the light and love the darkness. The ones that Jesus defined when he says this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. That's exactly the kind of people now that Luke is talking about. Jesus goes on and says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. As its own. But because you are not of the world. Because I chose you out of the world. Therefore the world hates you. It is the fallen world. It is the world at enmity with God. It is the world that loves wickedness. Paul's pretty good about describing this world. He does so in the first chapter of Romans. Let me read it for you. I know you know this. But just so it's fresh in your mind. He says they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. That group of people. In other words, what Jesus is saying, if that group of people speaks highly of you, then you have a problem. Then the woe is directed at you. 
Woe to you if the fallen, wicked, egregiously sinful world thinks you're great and it has no problems with the way you act or whether you speak or or who you are. And that is exactly what we're talking about. Now, in, in the context of idolatry, it's, it's almost that in this sense, Jesus is saying that the whole idea of worldliness is the idol. But it's, it's, it, it, it's worldliness, but it's also popularity. And again, there's nothing wrong with being popular. I, I think it has to do with as much with the pursuit of acceptance, with the wrong group, with the wrong people, that there is a desire to be accepted by this world, to collude with them, to find favor in them, for them to look upon you and not see any difference between themselves and you. And that is when we get into this, the essence of the woe. Because now that we have the people defined, now that we know what group Jesus is talking about, now we can determine what that woe is. The woe is specifically that group of people finding no fault in you. Because you are in perfect harmony with that group, with that fallen world. In other words, Jesus, once again, I just read it. If you were of the world, the world would love you. The world loves its own. And if you are so much the own of the world and the world loves you, then the woe is is designated a Jew. Because Paul tells us in Romans to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We just finished the study of James and James is pretty straightforward. He's sort of that in-your-face teacher, so he kind of lays it on the line when he says this, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I mean, that kind of maps it out exactly. In other words, the problem is if the world thinks you're great, then this woe is associated or directed at you. So let me give you a principle of the essence of this particular woe. Just so that I don't leave anything out, I wrote it down, let me read it. The essence of this, of this woe is not just that people think highly of you, but that the fallen and sinful world accepts you as one of their own because your soul and your actions are perceived to be in perfect harmony with them. Let me repeat that. And the reason I want to repeat it is because this is the bane of modern Christendom right now. That the world does not take this to heart. What Jesus is saying in the essence of this woe is that it is not just the people that people think highly of you, but that the fallen and sinful world accepts you as one of their own because your soul and your actions are perceived to be in perfect harmony with theirs. Now, again, remember the inclusivity of this. This is something that is a woe to virtually, well, not virtually, to everyone. This is a universal woe. It is an all-inclusive woe. To the unbeliever, it is a woe of eschatological judgment. Eschatological means at the end of the time. It means that one day, every single person will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And you will make an account of what you have done. And every single one of us, we read those Ten Commandments earlier. There's not a person here who is going to be able to stand before a holy God and say, I've never sinned. And so, therefore, you stand condemned. That's the eschatological woe to the unbeliever. You have no mediator. You have no savior. You have no one to stand between you and God. But it, it also applies 
to the Christian. We're going to talk about it a little bit later about how it applies to the Christian. But I, I want to remind you that Jesus is talking to people who are the people of God. He's talking to his disciples at the time. And, and what he is saying is that woe to you if your life is more representative of the life of a pagan in the world of the rats in the sewer than it is the kingdom of heaven. Woe unto you if, if, if that's your life and that's the way people see you and as far as the church is concerned, brothers and sisters, we're just filled with people. But if a church has lost that, 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 that love of Christ and lost the identity, the light is no longer there. They are on the road to heresy or apostasy and they are in danger of Jesus simply removing the lampstand that we see in the first of Revelation. Taking the lamps, taking his spirit out of the church. Because if we are not looking like Jesus, we're looking like the world, isn't that spirit's not going to stay there? And so this is a, a universal, a very, very significant um, uh, um, uh, woe that Jesus gives. Now, let me get to the heart of the woe, okay? The, the heart of the woe is simply this, that woe to you if people look at you and they don't see Jesus in you. I mean, I mean, that's really what it all boils down to. Is you see, when you're a Christian, when you're saved, when, when Jesus enters your heart, basically the heart is changed. There's a regeneration. The Holy Spirit finds his abode there. Jesus lives in you in that sense. And the light of, 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 of the world is shining out of that soul. That's what I talk about, the redeemed self. We all have a redeemed self, and that is the light of the world, Jesus said. He's the light of the world. When he comes to live in your heart, you're the light of the world. Now, if people, as a believer, as a Christian, if people look at you and they see the world rather than they see the light, then woe to you. Because you've, you've lost that, 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 that redeemed self being shown through. People look at you and they do not see Jesus in you. Because guess what? If they see Jesus in you, they are going to hate you. And it may not come out that way. It may not come out as just out-and-out hatred. It may come out as scorn. It may come out behind your back to where you can't see it. It may be more of an enmity. But if indeed Jesus, people see Jesus in you, it's not you that they're upset at. It's not you that they, that they hate. It's because they see Jesus. You can have a perfectly good discussion with most people in this world about a higher power or about God. I mean, you can have a perfectly congenial conversation, but when you start to talk about Jesus, that's when the claws and, and, and the fangs come out. Because Jesus is a problem in this world. Jesus himself said the reason is because I tell people that their deeds are evil. I express the, the truth to them. And people simply despise the truth. Well, that's what we get when we look back at the wheel. Remember? Blessed are you if everyone hates you on account of the Son of Man. Well, that's missing in the woe because the Son of Man is not evident in who you are. We're going to come back to that, but let me go, let, let, let me go on just to the last phrase because I think this is kind of where the rubber hits the road with this particular woe. Um, first of all, notice the wheel. Notice what the wheel says in the last, the back in the 23rd verse. It says, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Now look at the 26th verse, the last phrase. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. 
Just like in English, um, actually in Greek, there's one word that is different. And it is the word in the first, every single syllable, every tense, every voice, every mood, identical between those two statements. The difference is that in the wheel, it is the word prophetes, which you can pick the word prophet out of that. It just uses the word prophet. For so your fathers did to the prophets, the real prophets, they persecuted them. In the second, in the woe, it's pseudoprophetes, and you notice the word pseudo. Well, pseudo in our usage of that word kind of means a, a sort of a hypocrite, sort, sort of, uh, of someone who thinks they're something, but they're really not, or acts like something, but they're really not, like a pseudo-intellectual, or sometimes we talk about pseudo-Christians who want to act like Christians, but they really aren't. Well, it's a, a, a little stronger in the Greek. Um, it, it, it flat out means lying. It, it means falsehood. It means malicious, cognizant lies. And so therefore, these are false prophets. These are lying prophets. These are the kinds of prophets that Jeremiah was talking about earlier when we read him. And, and, and we can see it again. I mean, these are, these are the kinds of prophets that are absolutely the kind who tell lies. Now, if we go back to the wheel, they're real prophets. And Jesus talks quite a bit about the world persecuting real prophets. In fact, if we go back to the 23rd chapter of Matthew, we read this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? This is Jesus speaking. Jesus meek and mild. Okay? You need to recognize that Jesus, as the Son of God, has a real problem with false prophets and those who destroy and kill and stand against the revelation of God that came through the real prophets. And so there's a very profound statement, but once again, we're talking about lying prophets. And Jeremiah said, Brother Frank read it earlier, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name. Saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own hearts, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another? I mean, we should pay attention to this because this is all around us. People who are prophesying in the name of the Lord and saying all kinds of things that are just lies. They're just absolute, bold-faced lies. Because that's exactly the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. But you know, there, there, there's... I don't want to just focus on those celebrities, those false teachers and false prophets who are out there. Because you know the reason that false teachers and false prophets exist and aren't laughed off the stage? It's because they tell people what they want to hear. The people want to hear what they have to say. And so therefore, the people are supporting the false prophets. If the people would simply run them out of town on a rail, which is what they should do, there wouldn't be any false prophets. But I mean, they listen to them and they give their money to them and they support them. 
Well, Paul told Timothy 2,000 years ago that this was going to happen. It was happening in Paul's day, and it's still happening today. Paul says this in Timothy 4, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And that's exactly what we see around us. People have itching ears. They want to have their ears satisfied. They want their souls stroked instead of convicted. And so therefore they listen to the kind of people they want to listen to. And so people are getting rich because people want to hear what they have to say. Not because it's truth. Not because it is substantiated by scripture. Not because it came from the word of God. But because it is what they want to hear. And people stay away from sermons like this by the droves because you don't want to hear it. You don't want to be convicted. You don't want to be confronted with what God has to say about those who manipulate and misuse his revelation. And hear the word, woe to you. But that's the warning. And if you're not paying attention to the warning, how can you be upset when the judgment comes? Because you have indeed been warned. Jesus says the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because I testify about it that its works are evil. And if we get into, again, the actual idol that is here, I think that the idol is the idol of acceptance. I, 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 I want to be liked. I want to be accepted. I want to be a success. Success in a pagan world is, is determined by numbers. So therefore, if I am going to be a success in a pagan world, in a pagan way, I've got to have numbers. So therefore, they don't like my message. They don't like the message of the gospel. I have got to water it down. I've got to manipulate it and misuse it in some way and present it in a way that the masses of people who are at enmity with God will enjoy it. Which is exactly what Jeremiah warned us against. Those who the prophets would say, oh, there's no problem. Everything is good and everything is nice. And don't really explain that, no, it's not. If you are manipulating and misusing the word of God. Jesus made it absolutely clear that acceptance and popularity was not necessarily the pursuit of the church and specifically not the pursuit of those who share the word of God. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, once again, Jesus is not telling you to go home and make trouble in your family, to be a jerk, to be confrontational. But what he is saying is that if you're mine and you follow me, and your family doesn't, there's going to be trouble. There's going to be division. You see, that's what I said earlier when I talked about the wheel and how important it was that there was a, there, there was a division made between the church and the world. There's a separation that occurs when you come to Jesus Christ. There's supposed to be an identifiable, recognizable change in your life and in your behavior. And so therefore, of course, we're not going to look like the world. Of course the world's not going to be satisfied or feel comfortable when they come to a message like this. Of course they're not. Because it makes them so uncomfortable to talk about judgment. But what Paul talks about in Romans is what happens within the church that is separated from the world and then begin to say, wait a minute, no, we need to 
be like the world. In other words, we're tottering on being not relational, about being, um, oh gosh, what's the word I'm looking for, of not being relevant to the world anymore. And you see this in magazines and you see it in, in secular places all the time. Oh, the church is no longer relevant and people are leaving it in droves. Guess what? They're not. No one is leaving the church that is truly saved. Now, there's a lot of people who are going to church that when the going gets tough, they're going to leave in droves. Absolutely. But God's church, the gates of hell will not prevail against that church. And no one leaves it. Because no one bought entry into it. Jesus bought entry into it. And so therefore, the church is as stable now as it was 2,000 years ago. And if he doesn't come back, it'll be 2,000 years from now. Every single person that belongs in the church will be in the church. And there is no question about Scripture teaching that. So we don't have to try to be relevant to a culture. We don't have to try to water down our message so that the culture will be be comfortable with it. That is not what should happen. And that's what Paul says in in, in, uh, Romans. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions. Now, I'm talking within the church. Divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. And the naive flock to them. That's why there are so many megachurches. I'm not saying that a megachurch is bad. There are some great preachers who have megachurches. But what I'm saying is that for every one of them, there's ten of those who have tailored their message to be popular with the culture. Tailored their message to be accepted by the culture. To cut out anything that is, that is considered too churchy or, 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 or abrasive or, or, or convicting. And so therefore they have completely watered it down as they feather their own caps, not to mention their wallets. But as I said, brothers and sisters, this is an all-inclusive, um, this is an all-inclusive woe. When Jesus says these words, he's sitting or probably sitting now on the side of a mountain and he has his apostles around him. He has disciples around them. As I said, there's a whole bunch of disciple wannabes. There's curiosity seekers and the very abrasive group that despise him and are looking to destroy him. All of these people are there. So therefore, the woe that he gives here is a woe that would apply to an unbeliever and the believer alike. To an unbeliever, let me just put it this way, and in a different way, I think, than you might expect. You know what Jesus is saying to you? Woe unto you if the world thinks highly of you. And if you are seeking acceptance in the world, you need to recognize something. You need to understand something. That there's a thin veneer of culture that sits upon the enemy of all that is righteous and godly in this world. Scriptures refer to him as Satan or the devil and his angels. And there is a force of evil that sits underneath this. And he is a liar. And that's all he knows how to do is to lie. And so Jesus warns you, don't listen to the lie. Don't listen to him. Because he's going to tell you, oh, you surely will not die, as he told Eve. 
He's going to tell you that everything is okay. He's going to tell you that either if God exists, he doesn't really care about your sin. He just winks at your sin and everything is going to be fine. Well, this is what Jesus says about him. Talking about the people that fall in with him. He says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Jesus is saying, please pay attention with compassion in his voice. He's lying you straight to hell. Because that's where he's headed. He is headed towards that lake of fire. And all who are with him will go there as well. And they will hear on that last day, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now please, please, before you throw that out, before you don't listen to that, consider the source. Consider who said that. It's not me. I'm I'm just the messenger. I'm just reading off of this book. Jesus says, I am the son of God. I am the apostle of heaven. He says this in John. I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. God the father sent God the son, became a human being, walked around on this earth and explained to us more than anyone else did the dangers of falling for the lies of the enemy. That literally there is hell to play. With, cat, with compassion, he says, don't listen to him because he would lead you astray. Instead, repent. Recognize that you're not going to be able to stand before a holy God with your sins or, or my sins or anyone's sins. No one's going to be able to stand before that holy God and be righteous in his eyes. You need a savior You need someone to come between you and that God who will step in between and say, I paid for those sins. That's why he went to the cross so that he could pay for your sins and mine so that we could be redeemed of those sins so that we would not suffer the wrath of God. If you do not have Jesus as your savior, you will face the wrath of God on your own. And Jesus knows what it's like. And he tells you, you don't want to be there. But as I said, I keep going back to that 20th verse. This is inclusive. So it's also inclusive to those within the church, not just unbelievers, not just those outside of the church, but this, this is a woe that needs to be focused on, on us, needs to be focused on me. You know, in that 20th verse, we read that Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples. That means that he fixed his gaze upon them. Now, you know, I like to visualize things. I'm a very visual person, but I don't like to visualize a face for Jesus. I realize that it's necessary for educational purposes and movies, but I don't like myself to put a face on him, but I can only imagine those eyes because we're told that he fixed his gaze upon his disciples and through that us. And I can only imagine the eyes of the Son of God fixating on me and saying, Woe to you if all people speak well of you. Woe to you. These men that are charged with carrying his gospel into the world and being the foundation of his church of which we are still a part. He says to them, Woe of you. Woe are you if you change my gospel. If you water it down. 
If you manipulate it, if you misuse it, if you, craving acceptance from a fallen culture, adjust my gospel to that culture, woe is you. You you should know this keeps me up at night, night after night. I struggle with it all week long. For 18 years, I've been driving here on Sunday morning and it happened not once without a knot in the pit of my stomach. When I ascend these stairs to take this pulpit, my knees knock. And I stand here trembling inside. And the reason I tremble is because I know that when I get to heaven, when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I will discover just what an egregiously rotten job I have done as far as expositing this word of God. It is an incredible burden to bring the word to you week after week. And I have this desire to do it right, to, do, to not interject myself into it, to be as transparent as I can. But I know even with that desire, I fail. So woe is me. Woe is me every time I take this pulpit. Woe is me every time I preach. Every time I misuse the revelation of God just a little bit. That's how seriously I take it. Unfortunately, it's not just me, folks. It's not just preachers. It's evangelists, missionaries. The elders, talk to any of them when they take this pulpit. Ask them how they feel. Ask them if they tremble in their hearts. Ask them if it is a burden for them to do it. But it is also seminary professors... It is our Bible teachers in our school and Bible teachers in Bible college. It is our Sunday school teachers. It is our children's church teachers. It is every single one who takes the word of God and says, this is what it means. Thus saith the Lord. But it's also you. Each one of you. If you gather around in your homes with your children, you start to tell them what scripture says. Woe to you if you don't give it correctly. If you don't Share that word with them in its entirety as it is presented. Woe to you if you water it down. Or woe to you if you change the message. Woe to you if you teach them to pursue acceptance in this world. Or if in your Bible studies that the almost omnipresent question is asked you. So what does this passage mean to you? It doesn't matter what it means to you. What does the passage mean What does it mean when God wrote it? What does the Holy Spirit mean by it? It doesn't matter what it means to us. Woe to you if you say this is what the scripture means to me. And not what it means when God wrote it. So brothers and sisters, it's not just pastors. It's not just preachers. It's everyone. But it breaks my heart. It devastates me when I see the kind of abuse of God's word that surrounds us. And I'm not going to sully this conversation by naming names. You know I do on occasion. I think we should because scripture calls us to call, tells us to call them out. But I think on this particular day, the woes are enough. I don't know if you've noticed it, but as we have gone through these woes and all the idols that underlie these woes, you can go to almost any megachurch around and you will find those idols not only being accepted, but being preached as the norm. 
You go to a health and wealth gospel church and the, 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 the prosperity theology, and they're going to teach you that God wants you to be rich. God wants you to have material blessings. When Jesus says, blessed are you if you're poor. And woe to you if you're rich. Woe to you if your God is your wealth. Woe to you if you've given a second thought. So therefore, the, the idols, and, and it doesn't matter. It can be gold. It can be um, uh, being filled with the world, the carnal teaching of carnal Christianity, so-called carnal Christianity. There is no such thing. Or just the frivolity, the mindlessness of let's focus on having a good time and the focus, it does not matter. Sin's a dirty word. We don't talk about sin anymore. Well, all of these are the idols that Jesus is talking about, but they're all being accepted out there by false teachers and false preachers. So, brothers and sisters, it's all around us, and we need to be very, very careful about what is said. Even Jeremiah, again, saying, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Sometimes you need to hear the woes and not just the peace. But before I say what I want to say, Now, because my last point this morning is woe is you, and I mean you. I mean this body. I mean every person that is here. Before I articulate this, let me repeat what I've said several times. It is my great desire this morning that when I say these things, that I say them with compassion, because that's the way Jesus said it. That's the way Jesus would always say a woe. Woe carried with it a, a, a... a plea to recognize and repent and turn and, and confess. And, and so I don't want you just to look at me and say, oh, look at him, he's being judgmental, he's unorthodox, he's a fuddy-duddy, and you know, he's always talking about something negative. I want you to see that there is a deep compassion here. Now, I have to admit something to you when I say this. When I apply the woe to each and every one of, this, of us, and I am preaching to myself right now, not just you, because every single one of us falls in front of this woe. But when, when, when I talk about the woe and, and, and the result and the consequence of an unbeliever, Scripture is 100% clear about that. We don't have to question that there is judgment and there is condemnation and there is damnation for those who stand before a holy God on their own righteousness. That is simply not going to happen. But I'm unclear a little bit about how this woe applies to us. You see, I know for a fact that Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's saying, woe to you if all people speak well of you. That, that, that's to his apostles, that's to his disciples. So there's some kind of woe being stated to us. And, and, and how does that play out? I know it's not going to play out in you losing your salvation. If you are saved by the grace of God, you cannot lose your salvation because Christ took you you didn't take him you didn't save yourself he did so therefore you're never going to lose your salvation so you're not going to suffer that kind of judgment but what kind of judgment are you going to suffer because Jesus says to his disciples woe to you and that's a prophetic eschatological woe and I know that it's not going to be in heaven so maybe it's at the judgment maybe it's in the world now that we live in Oh, boy, I tell you what, if you really want to get an argument with a whole bunch of people, you start talking about divine earthly retribution. That God punishes sins in the here and now. <laughs> but then we all know that there are consequences for sin. 
So if there's consequences for sin and God is perfect in his sovereignty and ordains all that comes to pass, what's the difference? Well, I think that it has to do with, with discipline and growth. But here's what I want to say. The woes that Jesus is expressing to his disciples, and if you're a disciple, this woe is to you. I think it's woes that we should take to heart. I can't tell you how it's going to be manifest. I'm not going to threaten you that there's going to be some kind of a consequence. But I'm telling you that the woe is there, and, 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 and it is a prophetic, it is a woe, a warning of either discipline or, or some kind of a, a, a negative situation. So woe to you. And I mean you. Woe to you if all people speak well of you. Woe to you if no one knows you're a Christian except for your immediate family and your church. Woe to you if you've been going to the same job for 2, 5, 10, 15, 20 years and no one at that job knows you're a Christian. Woe to you if you have never told anyone about how much you love Jesus or what he has done in your life. You have never shared your testimony with anyone. Woe to you if you're ashamed of the gospel. Woe to you if you're ashamed of Jesus Christ in this world. Woe to you if you don't stand up for the truth of Scripture. Woe to you if Jesus is not evident in your life. People can't look at you and say, that person is different. They were this way and now they're this way. Woe to you if there's no difference in you and you fit in right with the rest of the world. You are on the road to destruction and you have no business being there. It doesn't mean you're headed to hell. But what are you doing on the road to destruction? Woe, if you, woe is you if that is you. Woe is you if the abominations of the culture in which we live are never discussed, never confronted. Woe to you if you can turn your head when millions upon millions of babies are being ripped out of their mother's wombs and dismembered and sold as parts. Woe to you if you never mention that, if you never have anything to say about that. Woe to you if there's no difference between you and your belief and a marriage of a man and a woman and a marriage of two men or two women. Same-sex marriage is no different as far as you're concerned or as far as those that are around you are concerned. Woe to you if you never speak out against homosexuality. Woe to you if you never spend out against the infidelity of this culture. Woe to you if you are simply in line with everyone else. And of course, woe to you if you're being unfaithful in your relationships. Woe to you. Woe to you if you like trashy movies. Woe to you if you're snagged by pornography. Woe to you if you drink too much. Woe to you if you take drugs. Woe to you if you harbor deceit and bitterness and unforgiveness and anger, even hatred. Woe to you if what Jesus calls us to be, which is his disciples, is something that is completely foreign to you. Woe to you, my dear brothers and sisters. Woe, woe, woe to you. If the light of the world is not evident in your life, if people cannot look at you and say, I see Jesus in that person. I don't know what it is. I don't know that it's Jesus, but I see something. Then this woe is directed at you. So you say, well, thank you for ruining my day. That's why I come to church, is for you to just completely leave me destroyed. Well, 
I didn't write the book, and I didn't say the woe. Jesus did. So let me give you some practical application, and then I'll let you go. What am I asking you to do? What's the solution? Okay, right. I'm, I, I'm, I just preached to myself. Okay, I, I am so full of the world, and the, and the more I walk with Christ, the more full of the world I see. You know? So every single one of us, this is not something that is, there's, there's some special group of people that walks around on clouds and, 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 and don't suffer with these things. We're all struggling with the world every day, and we have an enemy, as we talked about before, that is interested in just filling your beaker full of mud constantly. So what do we do? It's not rocket science, folks. If you're looking for some kind of silver bullet, some kind of amazing new program or project, you're just not going to get it because Jesus told it to us from the very beginning. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will come unto you. We've said it over and over again all the way through this. If we really want to get rid of the idols, what we do is we confess, we repent, we turn, we recognize, and we confess our sins. We get rid of our idols and we follow Jesus. I mean, not necessarily in that order. I don't care what the order is, but all of those elements are there. That's what we do. In fact, let me leave you with this because I just want you to consider in your own logical mind which one of these is the better situation. Because we have a wheel and a woe that are designed to be offsetting to each other. So the woe is simply this. Woe to you if all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. If this is you, you've just associated yourself with with all the false prophets, the lying prophets, all of those that Scripture is so vehement about, that Jeremiah is speaking about, that Jesus speaks about, that every single one of the prophets is saying that this is something that God abhors. You have just associated yourself with that group. Or is the wheel better? Blessed are you if people hate you. If they if they exclude you, if they revile you, if they spurn your name as evil on account of me, on account of Jesus speaking, blessed are you if they can see Jesus in you to the point that they hate you because of it. Rejoice and dance for joy. Why? For great is your reward. In heaven. For so their fathers did to the real prophets. You're aligned with those who are faithful to the word of God. You make the decision which is better to be aligned with the false prophets or to be aligned with those who respect and love and cherish and revere the revelation of God. It's for me and my house. We will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that this is hard hitting. And I know that these woes, eh, nobody likes to hear them. I don't like to hear them. I don't like to think of myself in these, these terms. But these are your words. These are your disciples. You charged us to be true to your word. Lord, as a body of Christ, as a church... There's so many churches that are making wrong turns and going wrong directions. And 
losing their compass and losing their lampstands. Lord, may that never happen to us. May it not happen in this generation or the next or the next or the next. Lord, I know that the only way that will ever be true is if you raise up, if you bring those that you want to take your word forward into the years to come and you bring them here and we teach them according to your word. Lord, we ask that you would do that, that you would protect this church and this school going forward so that you might be glorified through it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.